A few years ago, I was given the opportunity to teach a class at the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. And um, you're asked in the fall, typically, to teach a class if they would like for you to. And at that time, you have to pick what your class is going to be about next May. And you have to pick a title, and you have to get all this stuff together. Well, you might be in a kind of different mood, say, in September <laughs> than you are the next May. And I remember asking Nisha at a later time if she remembered what my class was going to be about. Because for some reason, I hadn't kept the introduction. I think I wrote it in an email and just sent it out. And um, So at that time, I ended up doing a, a teaching a class based on my favorite question at the time, which the question was, and kind of still is, does God want us to be strong or does God want us to be broken? And I had a class of probably, I don't know, 60, 70 people uh, were there, and it was later at night. And, and, I, and I asked this question, and we talked about it for about an hour. Now, I promise that that question is not a trick question, but finding the answer is trickier than we want it to be. Because that question challenges a lot of presuppositions we have about ourselves, about God, how the world works around us. So throughout my class, I demonstrated why brokenness is actually a good thing and why God needs us to be in the position of brokenness almost at all times. And one of the main points was strength is our enemy while brokenness keeps us dependent upon God. You guys have heard me talk about this before. <clears throat> and in the last part, I talked about my own struggle with depression and anxiety and Whenever I teach and talk about depression and anxiety, there's always a kind of a large group of people that want to talk to me afterwards, uh, whether it's to say thank you for saying things that I felt and no one has really talked about or, you know, my husband is really struggling with depression, how can I help him? And, and I have all of these conversations with people afterwards. That particular night, I found myself... Uh, sandwiched between two different people who both wanted to talk to me. Almost everyone else had left at this point, and um, so I was here between these, these two different people. And my final point of the night, kind of bringing it home, uh, my class home, was that I was still broken, and I was okay with being broken, because that was where God wanted me to be because of how capable God could be through me uh, when I'm not trying to be strong all the time. So the person on my right um, was a, uh, let me find him here. He was an older white man who enjoyed the class, but he disagreed with me on some key points. Um, he argued with me that I'm actually not broken anymore but God had restored me, and the proof in that was that I was teaching a class at the Bible lectures. Um, and he was passionate about this. He really was. Um, I was undoubtedly, he said, on the right track, and I didn't need to think of myself as broken anymore. Now, in his defense, I think that he believed that he was doing me a favor by telling me this. 
that he was really helping me as though he was taking this opportunity to release me from this burden that I uh, was carrying around. Uh, But what he couldn't see throughout my words and my interaction with him was that I didn't feel burdened at all. That there was nothing that needed to be lifted from me, that I understood that I was and am completely broken and that God, out of his grace and mercy, was allowing me to speak out of that place in a way that needed to happen, if for no one else than for me. Now, the man on my left was a young Asian man, probably in his 20s, and he was struggling with his life. You could tell just by looking at him that he was not in a great place. Uh, He was depressed, and he didn't really feel like he had any sort of direction. Some certain things he had tried hadn't worked out, Um, and he was not really sure what the next step for him was going to be, and so uh, he had come to the lectures that week hoping to get some inspiration and, and to find maybe what God's path was for him. He felt like he was broken. He really resonated with that, but he didn't feel like he should be broken because everyone in his life was telling him how to fix what was wrong. And so he, he felt like there was some, something then that was fundamentally wrong with him that had to be fixed, and if he just found the right path or the right thing or the right motivation that his life would get back on track. And this guy, um, the young man, stood there waiting for the older guy to finish, telling me that brokenness is not a thing and you don't need to worry about it and look what God is doing through you. He stood there and he waited the whole time. And I think there was one other person that was here just kind of like throwing a word in every, you know, 10 seconds or so. Um, so after, after this guy left, after Mr. Strength left, um, I talked to this young man and, and we encouraged him and we prayed for him and he left still feeling like he was broken and that he didn't have a lot of answers, but he no longer church felt like a failure. And more importantly, he left with a new couple new questions to ask himself. One, how does my brokenness or my weakness make God stronger in my life? And two, what if my brokenness and weakness puts me right in the spot that God wants me to be? And maybe I should stop trying to not be what I am. There is a big part of all of us that is afraid of brokenness, that is afraid of weakness, that is afraid of failure. And we are most afraid that those things will be made known publicly. So here's my free tip for the day. You say it first, and then it's out there. That part of us that is afraid of those things wants us to believe that who we are and what we do have a great effect on the gospel of Jesus being active in our lives. And there is at times a very difficult mental, emotional battle that takes place inside of us between 
the things that we think we should be doing and the fact that we rely on God for our salvation. And so this fear, this worry influences us to believe a lot of times, I think, that we actually do operate from a place of strength. Well, God is making me strong, and so therefore I can do all these things or become all of these things. And while I will not argue that who we are and what we do doesn't matter, I think it's important that we build this structure on the correct foundation because if it is built on the wrong one, it's going to fall. You know why? Because you are going to fall. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul has been breaking down what it means to be human in relationship to God. Uh, And it has not all been sunshine and rainbows. Certainly, all of those who have rejected God, he argued in chapter 1, are going to be uh, subject to judgment. They have put other things in God's place and have no knowledge of God. But even those who have known God the longest, who have had his word, his law, who should understand everything about him, they also will be subject to judgment. There is no exception for them. And Paul makes the point very clear that our actions matter and that we will be judged by our actions. He makes no He has no qualm about saying that to us and making sure that we understand we will be judged by our actions. And no one, Jew, Jewish Christian, Gentile, Gentile Christian, can escape the judgment that is coming. And and the even worse news is that being judged by our actions alone, that it's not going to turn out well for us. This is not something that is good because everyone has rejected God in some way or another, and those who have the law can't follow the law, and so they're actually worse than those who never had it at all because for all this time, they have not been who God has wanted them to be. It's not a pretty picture, and I don't know about you, but as I'm going through the study, I keep wanting Paul to talk about something else. Paul, can we talk about something else? Paul's answer is a resounding no. There's more to say. So the first thing that he, again, wants to drive home with with as much force as possible is to make the point that no one is capable of doing right. Uh, My friend uh, had this old uh, Volkswagen bus when I was in high school. And it didn't have a radio that worked for a long time. So whenever we were going around town, we would sing songs. uh, And his favorite song to sing was Don't You Know No Good, which went something like, Don't you know no good? Don't you know no good? And he would just go on and on singing Don't You Know No Good. Paul is saying, um, you don't know no good. None of you do. No one is capable of doing right. So let's open up to Romans chapter 3 and read these next encouraging words from Paul, starting in verse 9. Now remember, he's been talking to Jewish Christians during this time. 
So what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. So he's saying, look, we've, we've said this before, but let's say it again. We've already made this charge. No one or, or everyone is under the power of sin. So then he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, so what do you think Paul means by all of this? Uh, in this section, these are quotes from different Psalms, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Isaiah. So the ideas that Paul is presenting here are actually not new ideas. All of this that he said to this point has been said before, but maybe not this directly and with this much emphasis. So, yeah, you're welcome. So what is the main idea? Uh, the pagan rejecting the revelation of God in nature and pursuing a lifestyle that was both idolatrous and degrading was deserving of the wrath of God. They did not know God. They put things in God's place. Number two, the Jews who had the law but failed to put it into practice received no benefit from their privileged position. We've covered that too. Therefore, and this is the key part, both Jews and Gentiles, he says, are under the power of sin. They are under the power of sin. What does this mean that they are under the power of sin? Well, here's what it means. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. And, there, and this is a tough one. There is no one who seeks God. So Paul used these Old Testament scriptures to prove a couple of things. Number one, the condemned state of those outside of Christ. You will not be able to find a righteous person in the wild. They don't exist. No one has genuine understanding in verse 11. If they, because if they fully understood the consequences of their sin and who God is, they would not live as they do. But he makes this point that by nature... People do not seek out God on their own. Now, this would be a tremendously controversial statement if given today that many would have a problem with. Many would argue that man has often searched for God as is evidenced by the many different religions that are in existence, that people throughout history have looked for God. And, and even those who maybe don't acknowledge God, a God proper, but who, who are spiritual and believe in the influence uh, of the spiritual in the world would call that their pursuit of God. So when Paul says here that no one seeks God, 
That's kind of a big thing to put out there. But he believes this. It is true he thinks that they may be seeking some sort of religious experience, but in his mind, that's not the same thing as seeking God. Scriptures teach that it is God who takes the initiative. He is the one who seeks us and not the other way around. And when you think about it, that's really true, isn't it? Because in the beginning, when there's Adam and Eve and they have God, what do they do? What do they start to seek? Ways out, (laughs) right? And so Paul makes this point that these people that they're talking about, their, their failure to see God, just it, it doesn't happen by accident. They have purposely turned away from him. Now, on the other side of this coin, the Jews' commitment to the truthfulness of their scripture would have made it extremely difficult for them to deny the obvious testimony of the, testimony of the Old Testament that all are under condemnation as a result for sin, that all are under the power of sin. As it is written that word, that phrase that Paul uses there, translates a Greek verb in the perfect tense, emphasizing the authoritative character and permanent nature of the verses cited, meaning this is how it is. So, how is it then? Well, it's not great. It's not great. Now, to some, those verses and those statements that no one is good, no one is righteous, no one seeks God, no one understands, there are some who are really uncomfortable with that. Maybe you're really uncomfortable with that. Because you look at yourself, and what do you think? Well, I mean, I I try to do good. I, I, I I think I understand a little bit. And so it's hard for us to apply some of these thoughts to ourselves. It's a disconcerting idea that all of this is true. That no one is righteous, that no one does enough, that no one is good enough. But I have to be honest with you. I know Deb hates it when I say that, but I'm not lying to you at other times. But this is a, this is a glimpse into my soul. Um, I take great comfort in knowing that this is true. I really do. These verses don't discourage me. Instead, they echo something that I know is true deep inside of me. Why do we need to be comfortable with the idea of our failure and our, our incapability of doing things, doing enough or doing things the right way? Why do we need to be comfortable with that? And maybe here's a better question. Who do we think we're hiding those things from when we don't acknowledge them? God already knows that we are failures. It is we who have a hard time accepting it. And I don't want to go too far down this road right now, but I want you to know that there is great freedom to be found in Christ when you accept that no one, including yourself, is ever going to pull it off, is ever going to be good enough, is ever going to understand. 
is ever even going to seek God completely. There is freedom in Christ in accepting that. Doesn't seem that way, but it's true. Now, one of the Jewish Christians could have looked at these verses, and, and some of them were written by you know, prophets or by David, and they could say, well, you know, these passages don't apply to Jews, but to Gentiles and to the enemies of those who follow God. But Paul makes it clear that he is referring to whom? Everyone. That there is no one who escapes this thing. And if they wanted to argue, well, yeah, but we are Jewish Christians. We are the people of God. They don't apply to us. It wasn't written that way. Paul has this for them. The law, what we do, and our striving after that is not going to save us. It is going to condemn us because the only thing the law is good for you, the only thing it does really for you, is point out how many ways you're wrong. From Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, i.e., you've read the law, you understand the law, therefore, it's the boss of you. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Uh, think back to when your kids were little. And um, when they did something they shouldn't have done for the first time. I remember the first time uh, that Zeke lied to me over like the silliest thing. And uh, I reacted poorly, which is not a story we're going to tell today, except you might want to know a toy was thrown in the trash can and then removed from the trash can because I was not that smart. Um, but there's a premise, right, when with our kids, as they're growing up, as they become people, that when they're little, they don't quite understand the difference between what they should do and what they shouldn't do, right? So you teach them and, and you tell them what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Don't throw your food, you know. Don't stab your brother with a fork. You know, whatever it is, whatever it is. And once you have explained this to them, what is your expectation? That they will learn that this is right and this is wrong and that they will follow through with that. So therefore, when you've told them don't stab your brother with a fork and they the next day stab their brother with a fork, they are now doing what? Disobeying and violating the law that you laid down just 24 short hours ago. That is what the law is good for, Paul says. You can't claim ignorance for anything. You can't claim that you didn't know something. You can't claim any of these things. Paul knows that one of the hardest things for Jewish Christians to do is to let go of the role that the law has played in their lives. Um, I want to sort of liken this to our attachment today to the lesser idea that doing good things earns us points with God. So 
Once again, Paul reiterated the theme that was so difficult for his audience to understand and accept. No human being can be brought into a right standing with God on the basis of doing what the law requires. Why? Because the law makes us conscious of sin. It reveals all the things we shouldn't do. And then what do we do? We go out and do them. So the law is not your friend. And why would you want to hold on to it so tightly when all it does is prove you're not that smart? Law encourages effort. But human effort inevitably falls short of the divine standard. The purpose of the law is to guide conduct, not to provide a method to stand before God on the basis of one's own righteousness. As one scholar noted, the law is the straight edge that shows how crooked we are. Imagine this, since we, you know, we don't, we're not quite that beholden to the law maybe, but we do have this idea, you know, that I do good things and God likes it when I do good things and, and that makes God happy and, you know, then I get some sort of, you know, heavenly bonus. Um, Imagine, imagine this, that at the end of the day, you were graded on everything you had done over that day. And it's pass or fail. Okay? Pass or fail. To pass, you will have had to do everything right that day. To fail, the only, you know, to fail you only would have had to have done one thing wrong. There is no curve. It's pass or fail. So if you do one thing wrong, you failed for the day. This is what we cling to when we hold to some of these ideas. That somehow we're doing good or we're doing something ourselves or making ourselves good people, whatever it is. But I look at this and I look at this, well, doing good things for God and scoring points for God. Do I really want God to have a point system? I don't. I don't want him to have a point system because it's so absolute. Either you pass or you fail, which is why church, again, I am totally comfortable, <laughs> even happy and peaceful, that Paul says, y'all are a mess, and no one is good, and no one is seeking God, no one obeys, no one does any of these things. Paul definitely wants his readers to feel something, and the trick is, it's not despair, it's not. He wants them to feel helplessness, specifically. We don't like to feel helpless, but we must. We must feel helpless, incapable, weak, broken, that we are deserving of wrath, and that if we were judged by our own actions, we would be judged harshly. Why do we need to feel this way? We need to feel this way for one really good reason. We are not the answer to our problem. More of you is not the answer to this problem. 
Never has been, never will be. Because you can't really fix what's wrong. But don't worry. We finally get to take a breath. You know why? Because it is not your deeds that save you. It is your faith in Jesus Christ. It is not your deeds. It is your faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Breathe that in for a second. After a couple of kind of downer weeks for us here. You have wanted Paul to get to this point. I've wanted Paul to get this point, so take a second to appreciate that he finally does. It is not you who corrects the problem of God and man. It is Jesus. So let's break down what he says here really quickly as we come to our conclusion. Number one, righteousness matters. But it's not your righteousness that matters. It is God's righteousness. God must be true to himself. He is just and he is faithful. He must punish and he is loving. So what is he going to do about this mess? There is, therefore, a, a new righteousness that is apart from the law. This really and truly matters, again, because righteousness under the law was unattainable. This righteousness of Jesus is, get this, given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. This righteousness is a gift. It's not earned. It is given. All you got to do is, like, hold your hands out. Boom! There it is. And number two, it is, be given, it is given because of faith in Jesus. Think about that for a second. You get the gift because you believe in the gift. Right? Number three, it is given to whom? Anyone who believes in Jesus. And in case you forgot, and I don't know how you could have, he says again, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile because we are all losers, but we all become winners because we are all justified freely by the grace of God that comes through Jesus. And it is God who has done all of this for you. Guess how much you had to do with this? Zero. You were the problem that had to be solved, my dude. It is God who has done all of this. He presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, and he did this to show his righteousness. You see, 
He had been patient, not punishing sin, and through the sacrifice of atonement, he no longer has to ignore all that's happened. Ignore is not the right word. Put off the result of all that has happened. God was always going to have to punish our sin, and he had been patient with us, but we had still continued to sin, and he knew that. So he cannot be righteous, just, and leave all this mess unpunished or undealt with. The problem, of course, is that everyone has committed sin and therefore deserves to be punished. We made our bed. We should be made to lie in it. But instead of punishing, God sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice to take the wrath of God, the punishment for our sins. So God has overcome this mess by still recognizing our sin and being just, hey, it's here, but removing the punishment of the sin through Jesus so that he can love and forgive and be merciful. It allows him to be the most pure sense of himself. He doesn't have to ignore what's happened in order to be in relationship with man. Jesus takes care of all of that. So he is true to justice and he is true to love and faithfulness. And the problem of how a holy God can receive into his presence those who by nature are unholy has been solved. Therefore, living the Christian life means what? It means you live with humility. You are not humiliated. You live with humility. Verses 27 through 30. Where then is boasting it is excluded? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. What, what is he wanting to say here? If you know that it is your faith in Jesus that saves you and not what you alone are capable of, then the response from you should be overwhelming gratitude and personal humility. Maybe you should stop struggling over who is in and who is out, who is better, who is worse, and proclaim that all are worse and all are saved through Jesus. Stop trying to prove that you are good enough or more deserving or better than someone else. You aren't. You aren't. The difference between you and someone else may just be Jesus. You are broken, you are weak, you are helpless. It's not a bad thing, it's just the truth. And if you can accept that this is true about you, I have some really good news. For there is one God, overall, who out of his goodness has done this redemptive work for all. And all you have to do to get this gift is to want it. To believe in it. So let's recap. Number one, no one is good enough for God in any way, shape, or form. No one, really, that's the end. 
Our salvation does not come from what we do. It comes from our faith in Jesus. God offers his righteousness to those who will receive it, not as something to supplement their own good works, but as a gift that alone can place them in the right standing of God. Number three, God has done this work, sending Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, taking the wrath of our sin and giving us salvation in return, something that we do not deserve. And number four, the knowledge of our helplessness and God's great love should lead us to be a people of humility. Because as Paul has already said, it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. I'm in more need of God's mercy now than ever before. I am still broken, weak, and helpless. I am unafraid to admit that because I know that God out of his mercy, chose to redeem me. I am made more than what I am on my own. I'm amazed that Jesus took the punishment for my sin, and all of this tells me that I do not need to spend another moment trying to be good enough, for Jesus is enough. Amen?